Welcome back, Herming Brainiacs, to the podcast. We're talking about uh, chapter 6.1. We're going to have to be very quick tonight. Uh, apologies. Short reading, short podcast. Swim says the mum officially said this reading was hilarious. Techrific says I actually laughed out loud. In hindsight, I guess you had to be there and here at this moment. After the setup earlier about Edward's fog, these two lines were funny and oddly satisfying. The fog, the fog, I said to myself, is descending upon him, and never was so thick as it is at this moment between Bopar and Nuremberg. The fog, hey? Um, well, hey, we got a laugh. I have noticed the readings are becoming a lot easier. Um, this... Edward character he's hanging out with seems to have a good effect on his writing eh? so let's see if it continues that illustrated paper Edward began you aren't going to open that a discussion again I replied interrupting him it was to tell you that I have been thinking over your argument and that I see it all quite plainly now there are times when my mind is denser than at others it is charming to hear a man admit that he is wrong. Nothing is more winning. And when we went away together talking of Achilles and the tortoise, so an admirable fallacy, resting it appears upon a false analogy which no one is able to detect. Edward, however, had been able to unravel the most the other problem, and we were going to see the old town. But on our way there we were stopped by the most beautiful fountain in the world, to which all the folk come to draw water. The drawing of the water is accomplished by some strange medieval device which I cannot remember and which, if I did, would be difficult to describe. A grooved iron, one cannot call it a pipe, is tipped over, it fills the water, and it is tipped back again, and the water runs out prettily. It surprises me that I am not able to produce a better description of an object that delighted and interested me for a long while, compelling me not only to drink when I was not thirsty, but forcing me to beg Edward to do likewise. He besought me to leave that fountain, but... Its beauty fascinated me. I returned to it again and again, and I remember yielding at last not to exhortations that we should be late for dinner, nor to the strength of his arm, but to the eighteen stone to which that arm is attached. It dragged me away, I vowing all the while that I should never go to Nuremberg without finding time to run down to that see that fountain. But the time I was in Nuremberg two years ago, the fountain was not to be discovered, at least by me, and after walking till we were both foot sore, the friend who set out with me to seek it declared it to be a dream fountain. We took a carriage and questioned the driver. He pretended to understand and drove us to see a number of sites, and among them were some fountains, but not my fountain, mere parish pumps. My friend jeered at me, jeered the more, sorry, a dream fountain, a dream fountain, so I insisted on returning to the hotel to ask the way to the fountain from the hotel porter. A continental porter or concierge can understand trains and luggage in all languages, and when he has learned to do this, his intellect is exhausted. Like one who has won a fellowship at Trinity, and our man to save himself from suspicion that was beginning to fall upon him, that he did not understand us, said the fountain had been abolished two years ago, an open fountain being considered injurious to the health of the town. It may be so, but I may—I have much difficulty in believing that the Nuremberg folk would permit such a vandalism, and shall be glad if some reader who knows German will inquire the matter out when he is next in Nuremberg, and publish, if he discovers it, the shameful order for the destruction of the fountain." 
The old citadel crowns the hill, and around many devious streets a painting horse dragged us. Through the burning afternoon at the castle gateway, we were shown the famous Virgin of Nuremberg and all the strange instruments that the ecclesiastics of the Middle Ages devised for the torment of their religious enemies. Together with the stuffed representation of the robber baron, said to have harried the town folk for years, and he and twenty-five companions... The tale runs that one day he failed to make good his retreat to the cave amid the woods and was taken prisoner. The custom of the town was that a man condemned to death should be allowed whatever enjoyment he might choose. On the eve of his execution, a last bite of the cake of earthly satisfaction should be his. The baron loved his horse and declared that he chose to ride him through the town. No one devised a ruse in this choice. The baron was free for the time being, and putting spurs to his horse, he jumped over the parapet into the moat and swam the animal across it, and so escaped. But at the end of the three years, he was again taken prisoner. This time, the usual gratification allowed to prisoners was refused him. He was put forthwith on the wheel, and his limbs broken one by one with an iron bar. And looking at the wheel, I said to Edward, You wouldn't have been broken, but I should, had I lived in those times, and Luther would not have escaped, had it not been for the Elector of Saxony. We discovered the great monk's portrait in the museum, and a splendid piece of portraiture it is. Cranach fixing upon our minds forever a bluff face with a fearless eye in it, we looked into the panel tenderly, thinking of the stormy story of his life. Quite a little panel, eight or ten by six or seven inches, containing but the head and shoulders, and so like Luther. Those fifteenth-century painters convince us giving in a picture and likeness more real than any photograph, and doing this because they were able to look at nature innocently. We wondered at this Adam and Eve, two little panels hanging close by, single figures covering with their hands certain ridiculous but necessary organs. In modern pictures generally hidden by somebody else's elbow, or a flying gull, or a flying towel, or whatnot, modern painting is uninterested because there is no innocency left in it. Blessed are the innocent, for theirs is the kingdom of art. Edward admired these nudes as much as I did, and when he said it was not a painter's but a photographer's studio that shocked him, I muttered to myself, Pinnacles, pinnacles, on this we went down the galleries, discovering suddenly a beautiful portrait by Boucher, and the question whether his vision was an innocent one arose, and it was discussed before the portrait of a beautiful woman looking like some rare flower or bird, only a head and shoulders, with all Boucher's extraordinary handicraft apparent in the dress she wears, a cynical thing. For the painter has to be told her story lightly, gracefully, almost casually. And I had to admit that however much we did admire him, we cannot describe his vision as being as innocent as as Cranach's. All the same, these are the two painters who make Nuremberg rememberable, and we left it full of curiosity to see the town about 60 miles south of Beirut, having heard that it is today exactly as it was in the 15th century, less changed than any other town in Germany. The journey there was a wearisome one, for our train shed some of its German peasantry at every station and gathered up more, and it carried many creels and geese, and these cackled monotonously while a very small engine drew us with so much difficulty that we feared it would break down at the next ascent. But it reached Rothenburg at the end of a long afternoon, blonde as the cornfields through which we had come, and I said... We might have walked, driving these geese before us. We should have arrived in time for the supper instead of arriving in time for dinner. Alright, short reading as I said. Sorry about that. Um, but let's find out what's happening in... Uh, where are they? Rothenburg. Tomorrow.
Sorry again for the very short one, but uh, yeah, time is of the essence tonight. See ya tomorrow.